We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18 this morning for our Bible reading. Acts chapter 18. Beginning in verse 1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue at every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in, in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took uh, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed to, for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. But took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he got, he gone up and gone up 
and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch after he had spent some time there. He departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. If you're just coming in or joining us, welcome. Thank you for doing that. And uh, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Genesis, please. Genesis chapter 34. The chapter leaves us with uh, a little unpleasant material to have to cover, but it is part of God's record and is necessary to, uh, to go over. We'll get some lessons here from chapters 34 and 35, and one of those is uh, God graciously keeps his promises to a very faulty family, a very faulty family. Yes, well, we're thankful for God's grace that saved a wretched soul like mine, as our sister and my wife just sang for us. All is not well in Jacob's family. Remember... There was already some behind-the-scenes idolatry that had gone on with Rachel stealing the household idols from Laban and uh, hiding them from him. Now Dinah runs into a severe problem, and her brothers exercise vengeance in response to that. Uh, The text in chapter 35 tells us that Deborah, Rachel, and Isaac, all three of them die. Reuben falls into deep sin, and uh, this is kind of a demarcation for the ending of the kind of somewhat sordid history of the family of Jacob. They're going to move move our focus to the next generation, particularly with Joseph uh, in chapter 37, although we'll come back and uh, look at Judah in chapter 38 and then focus really on on Joseph and what happened then with the family uh, after that time. So the sons of Israel, chapter 34, take vengeance for Dinah. And uh, as you know, the text tells us uh, what happened. I'll read a few of these verses. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were very grieved, I'm sorry, were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. 
and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to the father, now it's the, the, the son speaking, said to the father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. And ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you if you will become as we are. If every male among you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. You have to wonder. A guy that's more honorable, what does that mean for the rest of the household here? Um, and Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Then listen to this, scheming. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. Sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and was in the field, and all their wealth and their little ones and their wives they took captive and they plundered all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? All right. Well, let's look at a few thoughts here on this text. You folks can come on in here if you want. You don't have to sit way back there. Ah, see, I've shamed them to come in. <laughs> yeah. Well, we love you guys and are glad that you're here with us today. Um, the sons of Israel here uh, go way out of line. And uh, now we know I'm starting here with the, the, just the obvious issue that the sin of rape is a sin that God takes very seriously, very seriously. It's a grievous violation of a woman's bodily purity, of the marriage institution, of reproduction, of freedom. It attacks the very foundation of humanity. It's indeed defiling, disgraceful, mistreatment, and rightly raises anger and grief in the father and the brothers of this poor young woman. 
It carried the death penalty and the law of Moses in some circumstances or situations. Let me just take you over to Deuteronomy to see that because it's not in every circumstance. It's kind of easy to broad brush it and say, well, you know, every time that happens, well, it's not in, in actually the case. Um, it says in Deuteronomy 22:25, but if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. So he receives the death penalty. And there are a number of other cases that are given here where they're located, if she could have called out for help and so on. Uh, adultery is called out here. Uh, and in one case, that, uh, that, that's in 22, both the, both the man and the woman would die if there was adultery going on there. So there are a number of cases. Um, and then there are other ones like in 28, Deuteronomy 22, 28. Then the man who lay with her shall give the young woman's... I'm sorry, 28. I was reading from 29. If a man finds the young woman who is a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. Now, it doesn't tell us what the young woman, if she had any input in the situation or not there, but we'll have to leave that for their time and culture because we don't have all the details. Uh, I understand this this in the law of Moses to permit modern human governments to institute the same penalty. Okay, that's a strong statement, isn't it? But I think it's true. I'm convinced it's true. If the human government says that it is a capital offense to do that to a woman, then that's not out of line with Scripture at all. It's a very severe sin. And if you think, oh, well, it's not that bad, uh, I adjure you by God to think again. This is a very serious sin, a very serious violation. In fact, in, uh, in uh, modern law, self-defense, uh, uh, deadly self-defense is permitted if you feel that you are under threat of great bodily harm or this kind of offense if you're a woman or man, I guess, today, but in any case, uh, this is possible for human governments to institute this kind of penalty. Now, it's also possible for human governments to exercise mercy with a punishment short of death, as we saw a couple of cases there in Deuteronomy 22. But it is not permissible to ignore this sin or try to sweep it under the rug. Now, I noted, if I, if I read the situation in 34, chapter 34 of Genesis correctly, and, and the law wasn't, in, 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 wasn't given yet, okay, in, in uh, Exodus and, and Deuteronomy and so on, but if I read it correctly, it appears that the situation that Dinah fell into does not seem to require the death penalty according to the law of Moses. Keep that in mind as we look forward to the rest of the chapter. Now, the, there's kind of some confusing language in here because it's a language that is describing the actions of pagan unbelievers. It says that Shechem loved her and spoke kindly to her. I don't believe that, okay? I don't believe that's true love, okay? 
That's lust, perhaps. That's physical attractiveness, perhaps. But desire for beauty and finding somebody attractive are not the same as loving someone. What, why was he not concerned to observe any proprieties of asking for her hand in marriage before violating her? His kindness was not able to atone for his prior sin. Okay? So, but unbelievers probably can think that way, and, oh, it's not a big deal or uh, whatever, but that's not how God looks at it. Now, under no circumstances should the sons of Israel have accepted the proposal to intermarry with the pagans of the land. That would have been a violation of what their father and their grandfather had taught them. Remember, Abraham was concerned, go get a wife from the far country where there's some level of God-fearing there. Uh, and then Isaac sends Jacob off you know, with, uh, with Rebekah's counsel to go find a wife over there as well in a God-fearing place. Not perfect place, obviously. They, they, you know, they weren't sending him to some fine church over there in Haran or Paddan Aram where he was going to find a, a, a pure uh, girl that had no connection with idolatry or anything. We found that out, unfortunately. But um, they were not permitted to just go and marry any old pagan person that they thought. Remember Esau married Canaanite women? Parents were upset about that. Let me reiterate that we should not think of this as an ethnic or racial issue, okay? This is a religious issue. This separation that should be the case between uh, the people of God and not the people of God is a religious issue. It's not, look, they look different or their skin color is different or anything of that nature, the issue was these people are idolaters and they're going to lead you away from God. If a woman of the pagan tribe converted to the God of Israel, I believe she would be a perfect candidate for marriage to one of these boys of Jacob. For example, Ruth, the Moabitess, married Boaz, or Boaz married her, we might say more appropriately, even though she was a Moabite, and those people were prohibited from entering the congregation of Israel for 10 generations, even forever, the scripture says, in Deuteronomy 23 and in Nehemiah 13, hundreds of years later, uh, that is reiterated. But if the young person converted, no issue, okay? Race is not any barrier there. Now, the brothers used deceit to get revenge on the people of Hamor and Shechem. It says they spoke deceitfully in verse number 13 because of the sin that had occurred. They're justifying this in their mind, saying, look, they did this to her so we can lie and deceive and do whatever to get back at them. Deceit is sometimes used in war, but for God's people it should be exceedingly rare and only in utterly necessary circumstances for example, the Hebrew midwives, we might say, carried out a little bit of deceptive uh, action. Uh, Rahab, remember Rahab and Joshua, the same. Or in modern, more modern times, underground railroad type situations, whether it's in the, on the underground railroad for, of slaves or whether it's in Europe protecting Jewish people from Hitler and in the, in the war, those sorts of things. 
Now, some believers, some Christians, can't stand the thought of using deceit at all, and so they don't, and that's very good for them. Uh, and, and I just pray that we never put in that kind of situation where we have to be put on the horns of a dilemma and say, do I lie to the authorities to protect this other person's life, or do I have to tell the truth? You know what I'm saying? That's really the, the, uh, the knife edge that you're sitting on there and trying to figure out, Ooh, what am I going to do here? Hopefully we don't have to do that ever. Uh, but in times of persecution and things, those things come up for Christians and are real dilemmas. Well, the sons of, of uh, Israel pretended that if they would become one people with the Hivites. Remember, Hamor and Shechem are Hivites, the text tells us. But that was never and could never be the plan of God for the people of Israel, was it? You stay separated from those peoples, is his teaching to them. All of this plan was conditioned upon the Hivites being circumcised like the Israelites were. And uh, you know, initially on in reading this, you might say, well, that's good. At least they're you know, kind of following the Abrahamic covenant and requirement. Back in Genesis 17, God gave that to the nation of Israel. That's a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But I take this to be a defilement of the significance and symbolism of the covenant. They were lowering the sign of the covenant to the place of a mere tool, an an outward symbol with no internal meaning. What what shall we think? That they proposed, even if deceitfully, that a mere externalism, a cutting of the flesh, could make a Hivite acceptable to enter into the presence of God's people? Was that what they were trying to say? You know, if... If, if you just get this external ritual done, you'll be okay. You know, if you just get baptized into my church, then we can be married. You know, the Catholic says to the Jew, or the Jew says to a, a Catholic, just, just become a proselyte. Just, you know, like without changing your basic belief system, just get the ritual done. The, the church will be happy. They'll allow us to get married as if these externals, external things make a meaningful change somehow in one's life. This is a foreshadowing of how people turn religious symbols and actions into meaningless rituals, whether it's baptism or circumcision or the Lord's table or confessional. People turn these activities into just meaningless things. Just, just go to confessional and confess yourself. Just continue on doing what you're doing. It's no big deal. You can always confess it later. Or, you know, if you, get, if you get baptized, then everything will be fine. We'll have checked all the boxes. We can go ahead and get married because we're part of the same church now. And the baptism doesn't do anything to change the person's character. They have no same beliefs that you have or anything of that nature. So they're really just taking the, the, the covenant symbol that God gave them and they're just bringing it down here to a mere human level. They're dirtying it. They're making it vulgar. Now, the fact that Hamor could persuade his men to be circumcised is incredible to me. Uh, they undoubtedly feared or respected uh, Hamor and Shechem a great deal, but they really had a, 
ulterior motive here, a hidden motivation. That is, look, if we get involved with them, we'll scheme and we'll end up getting all of their property. You know, uh, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do to Jacob what Jacob did to Laban. We'll kind of get, get everything, you know, coming our way. Outmaneuver the sons of Jacob and get a large financial gain out of the deal. And so they were being very shrewd and dishonest as well. Instead, what the sons of Israel should have done, instead of using deceit, is demanded punishment of the one who committed the sin. Just openly did that. Look, guys, we're not going to intermarry with you. We're not going to be, we can't do that because you're pagans. We believe differently than you do. Our God is not your God. Uh, You can convert and become followers of the God of Jacob, the fear of his father Isaac, the God of Abraham. But if you don't do that, then we're not going to have anything to do with you in terms of intermarriage and all that sort of thing. They might have trade back and forth because that's not a a relationship that entails a necessity of, of a religious defilement necessarily. It could, but it doesn't have to. Uh, But Shechem should have been the focus of their attention. He was the guilty party, as it tells us in the first few verses of the chapter. He should have paid a serious fine or a dowry equivalent, if not the death penalty. It's highly unlikely, of course, that they would have accepted the death penalty because he was a prince in their land, and the rest of the clan or tribe would have protected Shechem. But as I said before, the the Bible did make allowance for punishment short of death in this kind of situation. Why? He he has stolen something from Dinah that cannot be returned. He's stolen something that cannot be returned. And her future husband would want to know what has happened with her that she is not pure like I thought she was going to be or she should be. Of course, that would all be would all be full disclosure to a man who is going to marry her to be proper. But um, that was the situation. So they could have just dealt with that that way and been done with it. They should have allowed their father to manage the situation as well. Remember what happened in the story. Jacob holds his peace for a while. He says, I'm not going to fly off the handle and go crazy here. I'm going to wait, take counsel, talk to my sons about this what should be done, and uh, they took over his place, and uh, Levi and Simeon did, and should not have done that. They should have honored their father and let him deal with the situation and trust him. Now, they are probably, we might call hot-headed, not hardly young people, some of them now at this time, but some of them were. Joseph was going to be coming up to 17 years old here in a little bit or so as we Uh, look at chapter 37. So he was the youngest of the sons. All of the rest of them were older than that. So they're young men, hotheads perhaps, and they should have stopped and said, okay, whatever dad says, whatever he decides, that's what we're going to do. He's the head of of the clan. So, but they didn't. The punishment that Levi and Simeon meted out was grotesque, extreme, completely out of place. It was not at all righteous. Let me use this opportunity just to review with you a very important teaching in the Scriptures. You see what they did. They came uh, on the city on the third day after the circumcision ritual was completed, and they killed all of the men in the city. That was too many 
by all minus one, and probably too many by all, if they would have followed what the law of Moses said, uh, which of course they didn't have, but if they followed that principle. Fathers do not pay for the sins of the sons. And sons do not pay for the sins of the fathers. Let's look at the law of Moses, which makes this very clear. Deuteronomy chapter 24, please, verse number 16. Deuteronomy 24 and verse number 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Now let me take us to uh, 1 Kings, please. 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings 14 and verse number 16. I'm sorry, verse number... Did I say 1 Kings? Yeah, I think it's 2 Kings actually. Let me see here. Let me see. All right, there's a controversy here going on in Judah around Amaziah. And then it says, uh, Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. But the children of the murderers, this is 2 Kings 14.6, the children of the murderers he did not execute according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, in which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. And uh, we see the same thing in the uh, prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse number 20, actually 18.4 as well. The soul that sins who dies, 18.20 says, The soul who sins shall die, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor shall the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Now, not only is it true that sons should not, and I know that most of these portions explicitly talked about the death penalty, but the last one talks about the bearing of guilt, and I think that's a general principle, not just to the death penalty, or not just speaking to the death penalty. But not only should sons not be punished when their father is a wicked man who deserves it, because the son did nothing wrong, but also killing a son for the sins of the father Not only it should not be done, it cannot pay for sin. In fact, the only thing that's accomplished when you kill the son of a wicked person is you sinned. You created a sin in your life about that person that you got rid of. Um, The biblical principle here is, again, that sons are not punished for the sins of their fathers. Okay? Today, we have to reiterate this truth as Christians because of the modern evil doctrine. Listen, the modern doctrine, which is evil, that present discrimination is to be used to right past discrimination. 
Okay? You can't right a past evil by doing another evil. A present, uh, uh, I call it, I'll call it in quotes, an adjustment. An adjustment to fix a past evil could come in the form of financial support like scholarships or reparations, preferential treatment in hiring or admissions. Those things are wrong, biblically wrong, okay? Because the sins of the sons, or the sins of the fathers, rather, are not visited upon the sons, and, and in the reverse as well, Okay? So we hold that truth close and we let it inform how we react to situations that are in the world. We might say, well, how do you then right those past wrongs? Well, I don't know, uh, as far as this goes, I don't know, but it's not this way. There may be another way if you cleverly figure out one, but there's not, it's not this way. Okay? And in fact, in the bigger picture, I think it's highly unlikely that you're going to find a way to right past generational wrongs without using a wrong method because those people who were wronged are gone, the people who wronged them are gone. Uh, how do you fix that sort of thing? And let me just mention this. We've, already, we've touched on it in this passage. There are some sins which cannot be undone. Can Dinah regain her purity back? It just won't happen. It's not possible. You, how, do, how, do you, how do you undo something that's not, you know, control Z? There's no undo function for some of these kinds of things on your computer, you know? You're dead. You know, Uri is a great example. If, if you're killed, you're killed. It's, you can't undo that, Okay. So, yes, in this sin-cursed world, there are some things that simply we have to live with because they are what they are, okay? Yeah, it is a fallen world. And we wait, for, we wait for restoration and reconciliation and repair and righting of those wrongs in the final judgment. We, we can't have necessarily all of those things in the present, but that's why... <laughs> As Christians, we have a great advantage in thinking about the problem of evil because for the world, they think of the problem of these kinds of evil and they think, well, it just ends when we die. Oh, no, my friends. It's appointed unto men once to die, and then what? Then the real judgment happens. You, you might have had consequences for your bad sins in this life, but you're, you're really going to have problems later on. So when we look at evil, we don't look at it as limited by, you know, somebody lived 70 or 80 years and they had a life full of evil and they die and they're done. We don't see it that way. We see that there is a punishment for those sins, whatever they were, whatever injustices, whatever um, things happened, whether it was uh, financial or racial or whatever, those things will be addressed at the judgment seat of God. And he will handle them perfectly rightly even if we're befuddled about how can we fix some of these past wrongs. He will fix, he'll fix them up all right, and somebody will be punished for them, or else Christ will take the punishment for them if he has become their substitute by faith in him. Well, thank God for that. Um, so we reiterate this principle. 
Now, the other brothers joined in taking the spoils of this, of this uh, very lopsided battle. So they're not faultless in this situation, although Simeon and Levi are obviously the ringleaders. Now, thinking of these brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, all the way down, does it surprise you that if they did this, that they would sell one of their brothers into slavery? Doesn't seem very surprising, does it? We'll see that in chapter 37. Well, their violence had ramifications, obviously. It always does. You know, when you do this sort of thing, what do you expect is going to happen? You you execute vengeance on somebody else, the people connected to them are going to execute vengeance on you. Rightly so, the nations around about Jacob and his clan felt that these are awful people. These are awful people. Look what they did for this. It's a little extreme, wouldn't you say? One man commits a sin and you kill all the males in their clan? Yeah, right. Because of your iniquities, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God. Who needs to be like them if that's how they act? Well, that's a good question, actually. Very good question. Well, Israel or Jacob thought, oh boy, now I'm obnoxious in the sight, and they're outnumbering us, guys, so they're going to gather together and they're going to wipe us out. Now, we can count on the fact that God still protected Jacob. Remember the terms of the Abrahamic covenant? I'm going to keep you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. Curse those who curse you. Bless those who bless you. All that stuff. But this doesn't mean that Israel can do whatever they want, does it? No, there are going to be consequences for their iniquities. God could allow them to even fall into some very, very hard times. What did he do when they followed uh, after idolatry and instead of believing in God in the, in, the, uh, in the Exodus? Well, he sent them into the wilderness for 40 years, better part of 40 years until all of them died. And then what did he do with them when they were ensconced in their land and, and had their kings and, and then followed after idolatry there? Well, he sent the north off, he sent the southern kingdom off, exiled them delayed their enjoyment of the fulfillment of the promises? What did he do with them when they rejected Jesus Christ when he came and said, we have no king but Caesar? Several decades after that, in 70 AD, destroyed the place, scattered them again throughout the world, focused his attention on the Gentile nations of the world, even as he does to this very day, delaying again their enjoyment of the promises of God through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are consequences, very severe ones. Now, go to Genesis 29, or sorry, 29, 49. Genesis 49, and in 49, we have Jacob's kind of last words here, his last sayings, prophecy or predictions in Genesis 49, verse number 5. It says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So notice they didn't get just exactly what the rest of the tribes got 
throughout the nation because of their iniquity. Okay? Now, we don't count this as a punishment on their children for their sin, but it's a consequence of their sin. It's something that the children had to live with. You know, Dad Levi and Dad Simeon did this, and consequently, God has seen fit to scatter us. So what, Levi didn't have a, a, a lot, an allotment of land, did they? They had cities of refuge, several of them, and distributed lands around the nation of Israel. Uh, Simeon, we see Simeon. Simeon kind of is one of those tribes that kind of disappears a little bit. You know, he ends up kind of co-residing down in the southern part of, of Israel. Um, but this wasn't a punishment per se, because look at Levi. They, they were kept by God as his personal possession, weren't they? So even though Levi himself had this sin, his descendants were blessed by God. They were given the gifts of the temple. Remember, and people come and worship, they give the animals. Well, what happened to those animals? Well, the meat was for the people, the, the Levites, and their wages for teaching the people and running the, the temple and all of that sort of thing. They were held by God instead of the firstborn of the nation of Israel. So uh, it wasn't all bad, but there was a consequence. Also learn another lesson from this incident, and that is... Our young ladies should not be going out on the town, particularly unaccompanied. If you're at all wise to the ways of the world, you know it's a dangerous place out there, particularly for young women. So I would say an ounce of prevention is going to be worth a whole lot more than a pound of cure, isn't it? Dads and moms have a job to protect their children until they're married. Of course, nobody can guarantee the protection of their youngsters, especially because a young woman has a sinful self-will, just like we all do, and she has her desires, but she needs to know very well that the world is a dangerous, dangerous place. With drugs today and the massive degradation in society, the disrespect for human life, men have a job to protect their daughters. That responsibility does not stop at a magical age, 18 or whatever it is. I just mentioned here, too, about a selection of a place for post-secondary education. It's critical. Critical. If such a place is selected at all. Going to college, subjecting yourself to that kind of environment is not necessary to live a life of godliness, is it? So I want you to think carefully about that. You need to protect those daughters and keep them from the clutches of evil men. I I think there's some level, you know, well, don't blame the victim. Yeah, I understand that mentality. But you also have to be wise into the situation in which you walk and how you're dressed when you walk into that situation and what you drink when you walk into that situation, and all of those things. You know, this is just wisdom. But going out to see the... What did she think she was going to find when she went out in chapter 34 at the beginning to see the daughters of the land? I mean, I, you know, I could sort of see you want to find out what's going on and who these people are and if there's any nice people there and everything, but, and you want some fellowship, you got a bunch of brothers... You know, you need some young women, friends. 
But what did she think she was going to find? A bunch of pagans her parents should have been able to tell her. Well, we'll hasten on then and just leave those lessons. We quickly go over chapter 35. Jacob returns. God tells him to return to Bethel and to worship. And, and in chapter 35, it's interesting because he, after all this that's gone on, he says, look, we need to clean up the house here a little bit. So he calls for them to purify themselves, put away the foreign gods that are among you, and change your garments. Okay, we're going to go worship God here. So they went up to Bethel. He's going to make an altar, and he's going to worship God there. So they gave Jacob, verse 4, all the foreign gods which were in their hands, and the earrings, you know, the amulets, the good luck charms, the, all these things. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. Now, why didn't he just destroy them? I think that's what he should have done, but what do I know? We'll leave it for that, leave it at that for now. Um, Did they repent of their idolatry? Did they change their worship in the family? We just don't know. Now, maybe at this point that Jacob gave his tithe. He's been back in the land now for maybe up to a decade of of time. Uh, I'm not sure exactly to whom he would give his tithe. Have you ever thought about that? He promised to give a tithe to God. How would he do that? through charity, through a bunch of animal sacrifices where those animals would be consumed. There was no priesthood that he could give money to. So how, did, how exactly do you do that? You know, did another Melchizedek show up on the scene? And it doesn't tell us, of course. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, you recall. So I don't know the answer to that. The text simply doesn't tell us, and that's fine. Now, in the midst of all this, the, God did something amazing. It says in verse 5, the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. A small clan with a powerful punch is what they thought, probably. We can't mess with these people. They'll kill us all. Uh, Their anger tears perpetually, it seems. Um, So anyway, a few other things we see here in chapter 35. You see that the text says that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. Now, who was Rebecca? Okay, she's from the prior generation, and this is her nurse, Deborah. This is one who was her servant. So apparently she outlived Rebecca and was taken into Isaac's family. Uh, sorry, I should, I should have said into uh, Jacob's family in the notes there, and then died you know, at, at that point, so they brought her along with them. It tells us the sad story how there was a little bit of maternal mortality here um, with Rachel. Uh, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she gave birth to Benjamin, but she died in the process of doing that, and so Isaac had the great grief of burying his dear wife after all those years, although a son was born to him the youngest of his sons. Now, I'm not going to focus on the uh, immorality here of Reuben. You can read about that. It's just a very short notation of it. He couldn't control his passions. We see in Genesis 49, again, that uh, this is in verses 3 to 4, where we, uh, we didn't quite read 
back that far, but in Genesis 49, it talks about this incident. Reuben, you're my firstborn and so on, but you defiled your father's bed and that sort of thing. So he gets kind of set aside as well. And if you think about it, why did Judah get up to the top spot, as it were, in ruling the nation of Israel? Well, Reuben, the firstborn, he's out. Simeon and Levi, the next two born, they're out. Who's fourth? Judah. Interesting. Now then, at the end of chapter 35, the Bible tells us about the death of Isaac. Ironically, Isaac thought he was going to die about four decades earlier. But here he is now, 180 years old, just uh, reaching the last of his breaths and was gathered to his people. And the sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Esau and Jacob had buried their own hatchet by this point, and so they got together and took care of their father, the great patriarch Isaac, and, and buried him. In conclusion this morning, folks, it's often been pointed out that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the human condition, does it? It's very realistic about what goes on in the world, even to the point of being uncomfortable for us parents to read with our sheltered children. But it's not the evil that serves as the focal point of our study. It is a pointer to the focal point, the need and provision of God's grace. Okay? It simply points to the need and provision for God's grace. Without God's favor, Jacob, his sons, and all of humanity, for that matter, would be doomed forever. God maintained his promise to a family for future, prosper- a future uh, posterity and a homeland and protection. God did that despite their sinful condition, despite their sinful condition. And I'm here to tell you that God can and will do the same and save you from your sinful condition if you turn to him. Okay? Your sin should always be a reminder of God's grace. Sometimes people think of their sin and they just kind of regress back into the darkness of their mind and it's, they never get out of that self-loathing cycle. Well, we should loathe ourselves for our sin, but we should also remember that our sin is a pointer to God and to His grace. God saves sinners like you all and myself and everybody else who might be listening to this message afterwards. If you sin, you say, my, my life has looked a lot like this, marriage, dysfunctional family, kids have done these crimes, blah, 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 blah. God can save you yet. God can with His grace and His mercy. He did it for this family, which had a lot of dysfunction, and He'll do it for you too. Let's trust in Him. Father, thank You for the kindness You bestowed on us to look at this portion of Scripture and teach us these lessons. Lord, help us to protect our young ones. Help us to recognize uh, Your grace in the midst of sin and this sin-cursed world in which we find ourselves. We are grateful to you for loving us and providing for us even when we fail miserably. And uh, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.